getting close to that significant time of the Christian calendar year, right? Next Sunday being Easter Sunday. And uh, we hope that we will see some grass. Otherwise, we'll be hiding eggs in the snowbanks. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever seen an Easter come with so much snow on the ground as it will. Those that predicted we would have a super winter, they were not far off the mark. And uh, I woke up this morning, it was 13 degrees, and I thought, dear God, when are we ever going to get out of the 20s? Just Lord have mercy. But we're going to get there. Amen. The summer sun will triumph someday. Lord willing. And the creek don't rise. So hold on to hope, folks. I know it's getting thin, but praise God. Luke 19, and beginning at verse 37. When he was come nigh, even now, to the mount of descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. He answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. Lord, in the name of Jesus, we come to you today. And we're thankful for the move of your spirit here this morning. And I pray, God, that, that we could embrace that divine move of God. Lord Jesus, and that it would dispel the darkness that would draw so near to us, O Lord God, I pray. And bring the light, O God, the glorious light of your peace and the, the glory of your gospel to this world, O Lord God. We celebrate it today. And we ask God for you to anoint the word in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Shake some hands as you're retiring. Praise God, praise God, praise God. Amen. Well, I do appreciate your prayers, and I know my dad does as well. My family do appreciate your prayers for my mother. Um, I believe she's collecting her baggage for a final journey. I, I hope and pray that she will recover, but it's... Not looking very good for her right now, so if anybody wanted to see her before uh, they can't really see her anymore, it uh, would be a good time to do it. She's still in Saratoga Hospital in room 320. Uh, <clears throat> she's not able to eat. She's not able to take anything down her throat. So uh, unless God does something there, a miracle, it's just a matter of time. So continue to lift us up in prayer, and we would appreciate that. I was driving home from the hospital Friday, and I happened to turn the radio on, and I heard my voice over the radio, and I thought, right? How many of you heard they replayed the broadcast that we recorded? They replayed it last Friday at the same time. 
So um, they must have liked what they've heard, and we're getting a lot of good positive coverage out there. So continue to pray that that, that will will have some results, some good results. <laughs> I, I have emailed Allison and requested a, a link to to it so that we could distribute it to everyone. I haven't heard back from her yet, but hopefully we will be able to to get that link and have it out there. All right, I'm going to talk to you today about this. One week to die, one life to live. This Friday, uh, we'll, we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper, and we'll be doing it in an unusual way. Uh, the Friday before Easter uh, is now known as Good Friday, but uh, it was also known as the Jewish Festival of the Passover, and that was arguably the most important a day on the Jewish religious calendar. And uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, we now call communion the Lord's Supper, but it originated directly from what we have come to call from scriptural accounts the Last Supper. But it would not truly be the Last Supper because Jesus said in Luke 22, 15, and 16, with desire I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I say to you that I will not eat any more thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And indeed, Jesus would eat again several times with his disciples before he was taken up into heaven. And we know that there is another supper coming, yet a great supper coming has not happened yet, but will happen in the, our future, the future of the church, called uh, the Bridal Supper or the Supper of the Lamb, a great celebration in heaven where we will be eating together with Jesus, amen, and celebrating these wonderful things. I, I hope that, uh, I know some of you are not going to be able to be here Friday, but I hope that you'll make every effort to be here and make every effort to prepare a dish. Uh, there are recipes out on the Usher Hostess Station, a place for you to sign up, and uh, we are going to come and celebrate this wonderful Passover Seder communion meal. And uh, we've done this a few times in our past. We don't do it that often. But we truly discover how the Lord turned the Passover into communion. By partaking of this meal together, we see exactly the moment where Jesus turned the, Lord's, the, the Passover into the Lord's Supper or communion. So it's a great way to learn about our Past, I learn about our, our history as a church and, and how the, this uh, evolved or transacted, was transacted. Very meaningful. And uh, the food's all right. <laughs> some, of you, the, some of you may not like gefilte fish or carrot sims, but I don't find too many people that have a problem with beef brisket, but we all like that, right? All right, so uh, let's just come and uh, let's, let's do this. It's a great religious celebration. So that will be our Easter program this year is... To do it like this. Now today though we are celebrating Palm Sunday. And it's so called because on this day Christ rides into Jerusalem on a new donkey. Uh, he had the, the new donkey smell going on there you know. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> Whatever that is. <laughs> and uh, as he comes riding into Jerusalem the prouds are praising his coming. It was just a week earlier that he had begun this journey toward Jerusalem. 
three and a half years of his public ministry would culminate in this final act, the greatest, most significant act of his career. It had been one that had that um, had been being put off, so to speak, for the better part of that three and a half years. Because it would not be the first time that his life would face a crisis or that he would face an angry mob or have a crowd that wanted to kill him. It wouldn't be the first time. But in every other time, it wasn't the right time. And so he was able to pass through the crowds and disappear out of their sight. But now, with purpose and with deliberation, he's approaching the final mark of his journey. It is for every one of us at some point to touch the finish line, to have made a journey of a lifetime, and to realize that we are approaching the finish line, and that some at point we must cross over that line. I've been with numbers of people as they have passed over, and it's always an experience to behold someone in their dying days. I have never seen the righteous forsaken, as David said, nor his seed begging for bread. In my career, I have never seen the righteous who had faith with God and, and walked in the Spirit of the Lord cross over in a state of crisis. There was always peace and comfort and security. And for those that surrounded them that knew that they were making that journey, there would be joy mixed with sorrow. The bitter sweetness of knowing that though I have to leave go of them, I know they're in a better place. And someday, by the grace of God, I shall see them again and we will be together for eternity. For those that do not have this comfort, they may have been members of a church all of their life. They may have given in offerings, paid tithes, and done religious duties and said countless thousands of prayers. But they do not go with peace. They go fighting to the last uh, breath of air to hang on to this life because they don't know, really, they don't know what awaits them on the other side. Oh, for the peace which passes understanding, for the joy that we have as people of God, the security that runs deep inside of us, having once begun this journey, we know that we can cross the finish line successfully because he did it. He showed us the way. So this week before he begins his journey toward Jerusalem, he is approaching Jerusalem from the area near the Dead Sea, and he passes through the one significant town in that area, in that region, the town called Jericho. He's on his way to Jerusalem to meet this final destiny. He passes through Jericho. And what does he do as he goes down the streets of Jericho? He stops and pauses beneath the shade of a fig tree and calls a little man down out of the limbs. Zacchaeus, come down from the fig tree. Today, we will eat and dine at your house. His mission of redemption foremost on his mind, even as he ascends that 20-mile road into his final destiny. He's gathering people in.
pouring in people that otherwise would not be given the time of day or any consideration. Follow me. Come with me. Go with me. Let's go together. Oh, hallelujah. The pull of Christ's Spirit resonates down through the ages and still draws us. These stories do not fail to compel people to follow the Master of love, the Master of redemption, the One who so loved us that He would lay down His life for us. As He is approaching Jerusalem, He will stop at Bethany. And for the next six days or so, He will reside in the house of His friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, whom He had raised from the dead. But before He gets to Bethany, in the last two or three miles of this journey, as they've been walking and talking, along the way He's been telling them stories and Another story he tells them is a king who had certain servants and he was going on a long journey and he gathered his servants together and to one he gave five talents and to one he gave two talents and to one he gave one talent and said, occupy till I come. You know the story and you know the meaning that the Lord expects us to take what he has given us, the gifts that he has bestowed upon us and to, and to put them to service to put them to use, to make some manifest use of them that multiplies to the effect that the kingdom of God is going to be benefited. As he approached Bethany and uh, would reach that place where he would rest for the next uh, better part of a week, his the great commission was foremost on his mind. Hallelujah. And now he's planting into the hearts and minds of those who are following him that we have a destiny and a job to do. Uh, that there is something that is going to be demanded of us. An accountability of us. What will you do with what you have been given? The question still resonates in the air today. Is still being asked of each and every one of us. He was about now uh, to surrender to his final destiny. Approaches Bethany, the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and tells this parable. And uh, he is now about to surrender the destiny of his legacy to a handful of ordinary men, ordinary people. Everything that he is going to do, everything that he is going to suffer, surrender, and yield to is now at the mercy of of men who do not understand his mission, who are competing with each other for the seat of primacy, who are uh, constantly bickering and arguing and fighting amongst themselves, which is the greater. And he's about to give his life for the purpose and cause of his mission, and that sacrifice, that legacy, and the meaning of it, he handed over to people like me and to people like you. And our humanity and our weakness and our frailty and our, uh, uh, our good moments and dark moments, our good days and bad days, He gave us this mission, this job to do. And at great risk, but with great hope, He would do this. Now on this 
Sunday morning, this first day of the week, he comes down the steep road from the Mount of Olives, down into the Kidron Valley. From the heights of the Mount of Olives, you could look out eastward and across the vast expanses of the Judean wilderness, and off in the distance, the sinking landscape resolves itself into the uh, valley uh, of the Jericho Valley and uh, the Jordan River Valley, ultimately the Dead Sea. If you turn and gaze westward, you immediately look down the heights into the Kidron Valley, which is the armpit, as it were, uh, 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 be just before the body of the, of the mountain of David, the ancient site of the Jebusite city, Jerusalem, the city of David. The Kidron Valley swings around the mountain into the Tyroporean Valley, which no longer exists because it has been filled in with the rubble of the ancient city of Jerusalem. On the other side of the Tyroporean Valley was another hill called Mount Zion, not to be confused with the Temple Mount. They are not the same. And as Jesus beheld this and looked down over it, and got on the donkey, waited for them to bring the donkey to him, and got on the donkey and rode down that road. It's about maybe maybe not even a mile's journey down a steep winding road. And then it opens up as it comes out into the Kidron Valley. And directly before you, you see the walls of the Temple Mount from the eastern side. The whole length of the mount stretched out before you and the city of Jerusalem's walls there and there before him the road would lead into an entry called the beautiful gate or the eastern the golden gate or the eastern gate uh, and uh, <clears throat> that was the gate Jesus would ride through on this Sunday he would ride through it to the ringing applause of the crowd among the entourage of people that had accompanied him from Bethany were those villagers who had been there just weeks before and seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. And uh, they knew the story, and they were coming. And the people that they were coming to in Jerusalem knew the stories. The stories had built and built and built. And now here he is finally coming. And so... uh, Uh, As he approaches, uh, the mood is celebratory and victorious. A king has come to claim his rightful place on an ancient throne. And the crowd is pleased. And they are waving palm branches and taking off coats and strawing palm branches on the roadway in front of him to cross over. They are rolling out the red carpet, so to speak, for the advancing king. They are celebrating this moment, and it is a moment of great victory. Amidst the cries of the people were those uh, watchguards of the ancient Jewish way of thinking, the paradigm of the Old Testament, the scribes and Pharisees, saying to Jesus, do you hear what these people are saying? They are crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Silence them. Stop them. They were about to commit blasphemy. 
Jesus would say, if these people do not speak, if they do not say what they are saying, the very stones, the very rocks will cry out. This was the moment of destiny. It was the moment for which creation had been purposed and planned. When God breathed it all and spoke it all into existence, it was all to come to this point, the central point on humanity's calendar. And like it or not, it cannot be erased, whether you call it A.D. or B.C. or whatever you call it, our calendars point to this moment of time, to this day in, in March, to this moment of destiny. And the rocks would have cried out if the people had held their peace. They would have cried out. Here comes the king of the Jews. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And from here, Jesus would go straight to the temple where he would observe everything that was going on uh, <clears throat> around Herod had begun the construction of this temple. As you know, there was a temple there, Zerubbabel's temple, but Herod had rebuilt it, remodeled it. Really what he had did, done has taken the old temple down and on its same foundations built a new and very modern structure that stood 15 stories high. Could you imagine the side of that? 15 stories of high of gleaming white limestone and marble gilded with gold that shone and blazed with the colors of heaven as the sun would strike it. It was beautiful beyond compare. And uh, they had been working on it for some many years. In fact, the work would continue until 66 A.D., where finally the outside walls that Lying the Temple Mount itself would finally be completed in 66 A.D. to be destroyed four years later when the Romans conquered Jerusalem and leveled it to the ground. It was at this time that Jesus wept over the city. He looked at it. He said of it, you see this temple. The day is coming there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be cast down. And he did this, spoke this, even before all of these stones would have been assembled and put together. How interesting it would be that those who would cry, let his blood be upon us and upon our children, would invoke the very curse that would become their destiny because it would be within another generation of the generation that cried these words, crucify him. They cried for his blood. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. So it would come in 70 A.D. They would have invoked their own curse that would come. And when the Romans had finished with Jerusalem and its defenders, they crucified thousands of Jews on the hills all around Jerusalem. So that for a hundred miles you could not find a tree anywhere in Palestine. The Romans had cleared the forest to make crosses. To kill Jews. So fulfilling was that simple cry. That his blood be upon us and upon our children. We should be aware of the things we invoke. We should be aware of the things we speak. Amen. Curses and blessings can come to pass. 
And if cursings can come, so can blessings come. And Lord, help us to speak good words and blessing and change our world through what we say. Let's give God a hand praise. Hallelujah. It was here that Jesus went to the temple and when he saw and observed the commotion that was going on preparing for this Passover. Significant Passover as it was because this was not just the annual Passover. Passover. But it was also the Passover that coincided with the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, the year of Jubilee would be a year in which property would be restored back to those that had, had owned it at some point in time. And if they had gotten into debt and couldn't pay their bills, they were forced to sell off their property. It was really more like something like a reverse mortgage, if you understand how those things work. So you fell into hard times, you kind of like took a mortgage out on your property, and at the end of that time period, it was considered paid off, and it would be restored uh, back to the family. So this was a very <coughs> this was a very big celebration in a big year. Lots of people in Jerusalem at this time. A lot of people here from all over the world. They would not have come every year. Some of them would, but many of these people had come from all over the world because this was maybe the one and only trip or the one and very few trips that they might make in a lifetime. This was significant. They wouldn't just come for the Passover, but having come here, they would have stayed for the next feast coming 50 days later, the day of Pentecost. And so it would be timed of God that people from all over the Middle East and the Mediterranean world, the Roman world, would be gathered together in Jerusalem, still remaining, still celebrating that second feast of Pentecost, so that when the Holy Ghost was poured out, 19 different dialects are mentioned or named of people who heard tongues in their own language. God knows what he's doing and what he's about. On Tuesday, there would be debates and controversies and parables. Jesus would be defending his position and what he is going to do. The fallout of what he did on Monday, throwing over the money changers' tables and driving out those sold pigeons and doves and so forth, driving them away from the temple, saying, My father's house shall be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. It would resolve itself on Tuesday into a day of argument and controversy. And they would ask him, By what authority do you do these things? Who gave you the authority to come in here and upset the apple cart and turn things over and, and challenge the way that we do things, uh, the way we do church? What gave you the authority? He said, I, if, I will answer your question if you tell me by what authority John baptized and by what authority he preached. They would not say anything because they knew that the people sided with John and considered him a prophet. And they dare not speak anything negative of this dead, deceased man, lest they have a riot on their hands. Wednesday, Jesus is uh, resting, perhaps, or is gone into hiding, or is... Out of sight. Anyway, the scriptures do not mention any activities on Wednesday. So we must know that by now there's a pot boiling in Jerusalem, so to speak. Uh, everything he's done to this point <coughs> uh, is leading the wrong way. He had come in on a high moment, a moment of victorious triumph. But he only had one week to live. Hallelujah. And now, by Wednesday, there's a simmering, boiling pot going on here that uh, 
that uh, that he must uh, he must withdraw somewhat, and, and and it's not his time yet, so he must withdraw and let things cool off. And by Thursday, Thursday is the time for the Passover. At 6 p.m. on Thursday, Passover would begin, because in Jewish tradition, tomorrow begins at six o'clock tonight. And so Friday is the Passover, but it began at 6 p.m., and that's when they would sit down to this meal together. You know the story. They rented the upper room, and they, and they paid for a meal to be prepared for them. And uh, as they sat and went through the motions of Passover, and they began to, to drink the various cups, the four cups of the Passover, and uh, to eat the food of the Passover, uh, Jesus singled out the one who would betray him. He who dips at the same time in the sop with me is the one that will betray me. Later he'd say, whatever you're going to do, do quickly. And Judas would slip away into the night where he would make the final transaction and the appointment. He will be in the Garden of Gethsemane following the dinner. Later this evening, as his habit is, he will retire to the Garden of Gethsemane and there you can seek him and find him, and I will lead you to him. And so it would be. They went out. There was heaviness over the entire meal. It did not hold together. The church was in distress. There was a dark spirit over the church and the people of God. There was a feeling of malaise. Something isn't right here. Something needs, is broken and needs to be fixed. And... No one could put their finger on it or really understand or make connections of what was happening in all of this mess. They went out. They sang a few psalms. They went out into the garden. There Jesus said, I go to pray. Peter, James, and John, come, come with me. Let's go a little further. I want everyone to pray, but Peter, James, and John, I want you to come with me. Sit here and pray. I'm going to go over here and pray by myself. You pray for me. Pray for me. Peter and James and John tried to pray. They couldn't connect. You see, when Satan has an advantage, we live in the fog of battle. Spiritually, mentally, we're in the fog of battle. And we can't sense the moment. We can't know the destiny that is in that moment. We don't know how the battle is going to turn out, and it doesn't look like it's going to turn out well. And because we cannot really connect with the final ultimate purpose of God in that situation, depression, discouragement, despair sinks down upon us. And we know that prayer will strengthen us and help us. But how to pray with faith, we do not know. And so we make the feeble attempts that we do and sink to our knees and fall asleep in slumber. Twice he would awaken them. Get ready, get ready. The hour is near. It is approaching. Jesus was the only one who knew everything that was going to happen. And he knew that the time was short. The sands of time on the clock of his life had begun to run out one week prior. Or five days prior, and now it was coming to that point. The hours had been whittled away to mere minutes. Father, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Hallelujah.
Arise, let us be going, let us be going. But here they come, into the garden. Betrayed with a kiss, arrested, confusion amongst the ranks. The disciples flee like chickens with their heads cut off. They don't know which way to go. Only one will follow Jesus. Two will follow him, actually. Peter and John will follow him. But only John will stick close to him. Peter will, as you know, deny him out of fear for his own safety in life. It will be a moment uh, of personal betrayal that he will live to forget. I mean, he will live to uh, regret uh, for the rest of his life. A moment of personal betrayal. It's a moment that... uh, It's a moment that can come to every one of us as disciples of God. A moment of personal betrayal where we cave in, where we give in to the demands of the flesh and to the security for our own safety and whatever. It's a moment that that should have been resisted but may not have been resisted, and one that we'll live to regret, but one, by the grace of God, we can recover from. Jesus would not let Peter go, although Peter tried to get away. Peter tried to say, I'm not good enough. I failed my mission. I failed my purpose. I failed my ministry. I'm not good enough. Jesus did not let him go. Can you be thankful? Amen. In heaven, you will meet Brother Peter. And you will hug his neck. And shake his hand and slap his back as if he had never had that moment. You will not hold it against him. You will forgive him. Never to mention it or bring it up before him or throw it to his face. Why? Because he's Peter. God had a purpose for him. God had a plan for his life. God had something big for him. Hallelujah. And God wasn't not going to let him go. And thank God he does not let us go. He does not want to let any of us go. He wants somehow always to preserve us. And to help us to follow through to that destiny. That we were called to to lead and to do. On, On Friday morning, all night... All night that night, Thursday night, Jesus was kept awake, standing on trial in a kangaroo court, an illegal trial in an illegal court. False witnesses would accuse him, and justice would not be served by a biased court who had already made up their mind that he should be condemned. On Friday morning, he would be led out about nine in the morning and crucified. At noon... The sun would hide his face from this awful uh, moment until 3 o'clock in, in the afternoon. He would be taken down from the cross somewhere between 3 and 6 p.m. After it had been determined that he was deceased and dead, he had to be taken down off the cross and put away in the earth before 6 p.m. that night because that would begin the Sabbath day. And to have anyone dead hanging on a tree on the Sabbath day would have defiled the Sabbath day. So all of them had to come down. They all had to die and come off the cross and be buried. It would be a very hasty, thrown-together burial. Uh, A borrowed tomb. Someone steps forward and offers his tomb, new tomb, and others come and they quickly uh, take his body and and wrap it up and... and, uh, They have not washed it properly. They have not wrapped it with the manifold wrappings of linen 
interspaced with uh, herbs and the smelling things that would keep the body smelling good. They, they had not time to clean him or wash him or do that. It was just a very hasty thing and get him in the tomb and cover it up. And so Friday night rolls into Saturday. All day Saturday he's in the tomb. And Sunday morning rolls around. Sunday, the first day of the week, begins by the Jewish calendar at 6 p.m. on Saturday night. So Jesus would literally be in the tomb for three days, or parts thereof, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And so the claim that he would be in the tomb for three days, because over parts of those times he was Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in the tomb. Sometime, we don't know when, Sunday morning. We know something about the gospel stories tell us. A band of soldiers that were there set guard over it, the tomb sealed, saw angels, saw a bright light, passed out. When they awoke, the tomb was open. The, the seal was broken. The stone was rolled away and no one was in the tomb. They could not account for how, how this happened. They rushed away to tell the authorities what had transpired. They were paid off to keep silence. Sometime shortly after that, the women are arriving. It is dawn. Dawn is coming up upon the landscape and as the sun rises, they are hastening early. Now it's the first day of the week. Sabbath is over. Now they can attend to the body. And they're going there. And as they're walking down the road, they're wondering. They're all women. They're wondering, who will roll the stone away for us? How will we get into the tomb? And as they arrive there, they notice that their problem has been solved for them. The tomb is open. The stone has been rolled away. And angels meet them there and tell them. Go back and tell the disciples. The tomb is empty. He's not here. Where is he? He has risen. Very specifically. Very clearly. He hasn't been stolen away. His body has not been snuck away. It hasn't been stolen. It hasn't been reburied somewhere else. He is not here because he is alive. He has risen. And tell the disciples that he will meet with them shortly. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. So we know a good deal about the resurrection from piecing together the accounts of the gospel. Hallelujah. Now it takes time to die. Most of us do not go in the twinkle of an eye. Death can be a drawn out, protracted, and ugly thing. And hopefully it will come at the end of a long and well-lived life. Folks will celebrate us and say, well, he or she lived a long time and they had a good life. And somehow... We comfort ourselves and make ourselves feel better uh, because it has to happen, and we know that. And better that it should have happened that way than in some other way. Jesus, last week, is the story of two triumphs. Two triumphs. First, there is his Palm Sunday triumph, which was a splash, really. They were ready to put him on the throne that day. But by the next day, they were already beginning to change their mind. His moment of triumph truly was a moment. It was a moment. And I would, I would declare that that moment began to evaporate as soon as he overthrew the money changers' tables and took authority in the temple. That was the moment it began to evaporate. Because he was challenging the status quo and everything that was. What must have seemed 
a crushing defeat to his disciples would turn out to be his greatest triumph. By the end of the week, the same crowd that had cried, Blessed Hosanna, put him on the throne, were now crying for his blood. And the disciples retreat and hide, hiding in the darkness, hiding in the closet, hiding behind locked doors. They did not see his death as a triumph at all. They didn't see it as a victory in any way. They felt that it was the ultimate defeat, the declaration of the absence of everything that they had once hoped would happen was now gone. They had, at that moment, no clear mission, no clear understanding. You know that Jesus had given them a mission, the great commission. He had preached it to them. He had taught to them. But this next 40 days would be a days of intense personal trial and dissatisfaction. They were wandering in a spiritual wilderness. They didn't know which way to go. How can we go forward when he is not here and we don't know where he is? Even if we do know we've seen him alive, some of us have, not all of us have, and those that haven't are doubting and wondering and questioning. And finally, when he revealed himself to all of them, Thomas the doubter, at the last, it would not be his last appearance. He never stayed with them very long. He always disappeared out of their sight within a quick time. And those moments were moments of great question. Peter, already burdened by the affliction of a moment, we have discussed that he would regret the rest of his life. Throws up his hands in despair one day and says, I go fishing. In other words, I'm going to go. What are you going to do, Peter? What are you going to do? What are we going to do? They sat around the table and they talked. What are we going to do? Finally, Peter said, I go fishing. I don't know what else to do. I don't know how to go forward. He's not here. I don't know where he is. I don't know how to find him. And I don't know if we ever will connect with him again or what will happen. So I'm going to go back fishing. And the Jesus who wouldn't let him go met him on the shore. Let him catch nothing all night long. So he would be disgusted with fishing and feel like I'm a failure. I'm a failure no matter what I do. I'm a failure. I can't do anything right. I'm a failure. And we'd meet him on the shore. Peter, come. Have you had breakfast yet? Come. There's fish on the fire here. You didn't catch any, but I got some. Hallelujah. Come. Let's eat. Let's eat. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Jesus wouldn't let him go. Peter broke. Peter broke. He wept. He broke. He connected. He reconnected. It was a soft moment for him. A a, a bittersweet moment. A soft moment. It was an altar moment. When he could come crawling back to the very knees of the one he had denied he ever knew, it say, Jesus, you know I love you. Where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. Where else can we go? What else can we do? And so Jesus packed him back up into the upper room. 
And finally he left them and he, he disappeared. He went into heaven out of their sight. They saw him go. They knew he left. Now they know, they know, they know, they know, they know. They know something, they know something. They know something not magical, something mysterious, something spiritual, something definitely supernatural. They know, no, something, something is coming, something is coming. And they feel that something coming. They feel it. And he sends them back to the upper room. And for ten days they pray and they gather together. And now they're not talking about going fishing, but now they're talking about who is going to replace Judas and who, who are we going to put, put in to fill his ministry because there is a ministry here for everyone. There's a ministry. Everyone ought to be. There's, we're going somewhere. We don't know how it's going to happen, but we know something's about to happen. Hallelujah! And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all together in one place, in one accord, when suddenly from heaven there came a sound of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it set upon each of them. And they all spake with other tongues, as the Spirit of the Holy Ghost filled them. Hallelujah! And from that moment, doubt resolved itself into the firmest assurance of faith. For what can be stronger in life than a faith that would commit a life to a death of a martyr? What could be stronger in life than a faith that would take someone to the ends of the world to suffer all kinds of tribulation and persecution and never be discouraged and never give up and keep pressing the fight forward, keep putting it forward? What could be better than that? You see, for the day of Pentecost, they did not fully understand the victory that Jesus had purchased for them at Calvary. They did not understand the meaning of that death then. But over the next bit of time, they would understand it. And they would assimilate together a body of scriptures and teachings about, about the victory that God had given them. Hallelujah. Amen. I've got a bunch written here. I don't know. I've got time to read all of them. Hallelujah. But let me just sample a bit here in, in Hebrews 2 and 9. But we see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he should taste death for every man. The idea that Jesus' life and death, that his death particularly, would be an atoning death, a substitutionary death that could literally pave the way for transforming an experience for each and every one of us. One that we could rise up and have a hope and a victory that we would not die. The doctrine, the theology, the understanding that would come out of this death, which was not there the day he died, and not even there on the day of Pentecost, would now finally advance itself throughout the Scriptures. In 2 Corinthians 5 and 15, He died for all, that they which live should not live, should not henceforth live to themselves, but unto Him that died for them and rose again. And uh, Paul in Galatians 2 and 20 said, Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. But Christ liveth in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Hallelujah. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 55 speak of death. Uh, that death is not the final word on anything. But it is the beginning of a triumph. Uh, that ultimately those who rise in victory over death will say, O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, grave! Where is your victory? Death is not the end, but it is the beginning of an eternal life. Hallelujah.
1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, as though they were dead. For the trump of God will sound, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up uh, together to meet them, uh, meet the Lord with him in the air, and so shall we be forever after with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort ye one another with these words. Hallelujah. I want to tell you this morning, the two triumphs were, first of all, amen, that he had this triumph on this day. But secondly, the great triumph that would come next Sunday, the day of resurrection, a day of triumph for each and every one of us. And as we stand together, and I'm closing, I want to say to you this morning, uh, that the life that we now live, we live by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. What I want to tell you this morning is that Jesus is still alive and He lives in us. He lives in us. Not physically, organically. He would have to go to heaven so that the Spirit that was in Him could be poured out. But that Spirit that was in Him, that is who He is. And it now lives in us. And because it lives in us, hallelujah, you may have a week to live your life, but you have a life to live forever and ever. An eternal life to live forever and ever. Hallelujah. It is not just what we see here and now. Not just what we do here and now. But what shall be. Forever and ever. I close with this thought. Years later, Paul would be arrested and put on trial on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, He would uh, give an account of his experiences before governors and kings. And so, the Bible tells us in Acts, the 26th chapter, He is called before Festus and King Agrippa to give an account for himself. It would be the same account that he has given before to the Jews, the leaders of the Jews, an explanation for why they've arrested him and really for why he was doing what he was doing, preaching the gospel to Gentiles. He would tell them, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, trained by Gamaliel. I I publicly in synagogues beat and whipped Christians, forcing them to recant. I went out with letters, and I signed those letters that were death warrants for people to die. I went out, I was on my way to arrest more in Damascus as I was traveling, a bright light showed about me. Amen, and a voice from heaven spoke to me and said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And I said, Sir or Lord, who are you? And the voice answered, I am Jesus. It is hard for you to kick against conviction. Hallelujah. And so I was changed. I was transformed. I went on my way blind. But now I see. I was healed. Brother Ananias prayed for me. I received the Holy Ghost. My eyes were opened. He baptized me in Jesus' name. And God said to him and to me, I have called you out to show you what great things you must suffer for my name's sake and what great things you must do for me for you will to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And why Paul was arrested was because he was a Jew having anything to do with Gentiles. Uh, that's why he was arrested. They didn't want to mix with them. They did not want to mix with them. They, they wanted to, to talk about racial purity and whole, uh, you know all that kind of stuff. And they didn't want to mix with Gentiles. And Paul was openly preaching the gospel and bringing Gentiles by the hundreds and thousands into a Jewish sect called the Way. 
It was a Jewish thing. And Gentiles were flocking to it. Interesting. Interesting that when Jesus went into that temple on that, uh, on that day and cast the money changers out, at the same place in the court of the Gentiles, there were Gentiles who had come there and they too had heard about Jesus. And they connect with Andrew, one of Jesus' disciples, and say to the disciples, Sirs, we would see Jesus. We want to see him. We want to talk to him. We want to connect with him. Already embedded in that moment when he comes and says, This is my house, my father's house. This is where it's all going to begin. This is what it's all going to mean. And this is where it's all going to go. He knew that the mission would be to reach Gentiles. And he had a man picked out for it. Uh, he wasn't a good man. He had done a lot of bad things. But look at the people God uses. He takes a murderer named Moses and makes him the lawgiver. Uh, he takes a, a, an adulterer named David the king. And he puts him as the chief one in the line of the throne of the destiny that Jesus would come from. He took you and I, hallelujah, who are nobody. Ordinary people, ordinary men. But he lives in us. He lives in us. And we are triumphant. We have triumph. And we have a message. Hallelujah. Come on, Prince. Hallelujah. We have a message. And so Paul would once again give this same testimony by reason of his argument. And as he is doing it, suddenly Festus shouted, Paul, you are insane. Too much study has made you crazy. But Paul replied, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. I am speaking the sober truth, and King Agrippa knows about these things. I speak frankly, for I am sure these events are all familiar to him, for they were not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Agrippa interrupted him. Do you think you could make me a Christian so quickly? The King James Version says, Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Another translation of this says, has him saying this, a little more and your arguments would make me a Christian. Just a little more. Oh, the power in the gospel. Hallelujah. If only you would open your mind wide enough to let it in. To hear the whole story. To let it in. Hallelujah. Almost. Not only almost. Paul said, I would that not almost, but altogether you were such as I. Save these chains. Hallelujah. And so he lives in us. This life he lived. Hallelujah. It was not over. It still is going on. It's carried every day in your body, in your mind, in your spirit, in your life. His life is in you. It is in us. And I would declare to you this morning that because of the Spirit of God that is in you, because of your transformation experience of the Holy Ghost in baptism, you are as good as any of those disciples and apostles were. You are as good as any of those first century Christians were who were the first to try the Holy Ghost out. You were the, as good, you and I, are as good as any of them were in their day. You are as good, I'm as good in my day 
as they were in theirs. Hallelujah. So let us live that the light shines. So let us live that the word gets out. So let us live a life of invitation of bringing people to the Lord. Hallelujah. Why don't we celebrate and worship in song? Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus.